0: church. It's good to be with you again. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Have you ever caught yourself doing something good and thinking, well, I hope somebody sees this. Have you you done that? Hmm. As pastor and president of Alaska Bible College, I, I must admit that sometimes I find myself thinking this way. <clears throat> I have a digital ca- calendar that I like to write all the stuff down that I do, in part to keep track of it myself. But also, uh, there's a sense of accountability that I have if if uh, ABC board asks a question or an accountability to my colleagues there at ABC. But sometimes I write things down on that calendar, and if in one of those really self centered, self promoting moods, I catch myself wishing, I wish so and so knew I did this. This tendency to want others to know the good that we do starts very young with innocent little toddlers that say to mommy or daddy, Watch me, look at this, I can do it all by myself. This desire can be noticed as it matures in young persons who, who dress certain ways or or wear his or her hairstyles and colors or whatever, um, and even a lot of times the motivation to do well in athletics and academics is is motivated by this desire to be noticed and accepted by peers. It sophisticates a little more as adults as. Many adults pursue having buildings and streets named after them as employees to strive to be the employee of the month so they can get their plaque up on the wall with a picture. This intoxicating desire to be noticed by other touches all of us at times, doesn't it? Yeah, good they can shake our heads up and down, yeah. I think I think it's a, a common thing. Why? Because it's it's a part of our human nature, that pride of life, that want the desire for significance and acceptance and popularity. It especially raises its ugly head though, when others get recognized for what they have done, and you don't. Your faithful service goes unnoticed. Believe it or not, Jesus, our master teacher and our Lord and Savior, had something to say about this intoxicating yet joy-robbing desire as he preached his sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount here that I've asked you to turn in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's recorded for us. It's a message that Jesus spoke to his disciples and the, and the crowds there uh, uh, on looking on the Sea of Galilee, on the, sermon, on the Mount of Olives or the Mount of Beatitudes as it's called today. Outlining the kingdom principles by which his rule and reign would operate. A reign and rule, a literal reign and rule that Jesus promised and that John the Apostle predicted in Revelation 20. To happen someday for a thousand years and in eternity. And yet Jesus spoke these words for us as kingdom subjects, as people who want to walk according to the way God has designed his children to live and walk. And in chapter 6, this kind of the second point of his sermon, chapter 5 is kind of the common beatitudes, we know blessed this blessed that. And then chapter 6, the second point of his message, he recorded for us in in this. and And he deals with this practice of living the right way and how to live the right way. And he deals with three areas that often we may fall temptation to want to be noticed. First one was in giving, the giving of alms. And... You've heard of the phrase, don't toot your own horn. Heard of that one? Comes right from Matthew chapter 6. Because the hypocrites, when they went down to give alms to the poor, they hired a trumpeter to toot their own horn. So everybody would notice. We get the phrase from that today. They also would pray in public places They'd go to the synagogues and they go to the street corners and they would pray in order to be seen when they fasted rather than than looking refreshed they had this mournful look on their face so that people would think that they were super spiritual so Jesus addresses these three areas giving praying and fasting and his advice will save us a whole lot of disappointment and bring great reward for us in heaven If we all do this the way he wants us to do it and Summed up in a real simple statement is living right before him Is done out of sight It's done for his eyes only Now this morning we in continuing our series and teach us to pray we're going to just focus on what he says about prayer We'll pick it up in verse 5 And um I just want to show you a picture of where he was and where he ministered on the Mount of the Attitudes. If you want to see this in person, we're taking a trip to Israel in March. And uh, we have 10 spots left, nine out of Los Angeles and one out of the East Coast at Newark. And so if you're interested, um, sign up in the foyer. But we'll stand on top of this mountain and read scripture and look. Well, it's really not a mountain. I mean, we're Alaskans, we know what mountains are, right? This is more like a hill, but it was a mountain for them in, that, in their day. And it's quite interesting, most likely Jesus was close. That's the Sea of Galilee that you see in the background. It's not much of a sea either, it's more like a lake. It's 12 miles north to south and seven miles wide. You can see across it all over the place. But the topography of this lake is such that when the wind hits, you're going have 12-foot waves, 13-foot waves. So it, it's, it could be really dangerous to be in a boat, which, by the way, we'll see, that, we'll see a Jesus boat, a boat that was discovered in the Sea of Galilee that dates back to 2000 A.D. But, but Jesus was probably near the waters of the Sea of Galilee and was proclaiming this sermon to probably over 5,000 people. And you've often wondered, how, how in the world did everybody hear? Perfect acoustics here. You can stand by the water and speak, and it travels up the hill. So again, this is where this whole sermon takes place, right here on the Mount of Beatitudes. And I want us to notice what Jesus says about prayer. And as I read verses 5 um, through 13, I'd like you to try to notice two things. The improper practice of prayer, and then the proper practice practice of prayer. He'll intersperse this as he teaches about proper prayer. So let's follow along. Will you follow along? Matthew chapter 6 verse 5. I'm going to ask you to join me and pray. The Lord's prayer is uh, up on the screen when we get there. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you. They have received their reward. But when you pray. Go into your room. And shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret. Will reward you. And when you pray. Do not heap up empty phrases. Some of your Bibles read. Meaningless repetitions. As the Gentiles do. Or those pagans, those that are outside of Israel, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this, and let's pray this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen, amen. Father in heaven, as we prayed this prayer together, may you teach us to pray. Give us ears to hear this morning what the Holy Spirit wants to say to this gathering, your bride, the church. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May we not just listen to your word, but by the power of your spirit, be corrected by it, be changed by it, be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would become more and more a people who are characterized by prayer. We pray you would do this in the power of your spirit. We have worshipped you in song. Now may we worship you in the word by listening. And be with me as I seek to worship you by proclaiming your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to notice, first of all, the improper practice of prayer that Jesus speaks about. He speaks about it in verse 5 and in verse 7 and 8. Let's look at verse 5. He gives us two how not to do prayer and two why not to do it that way. And in verse 5, he gives us a how not. And he says, praying should not be publicized. Jesus is not condemning public prayer here. Matthew 18, later, later on in this gospel Jesus was teaching about how to correct those who are disobedient, disobedient believers. And he says, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst, gathered together to pray. And so there's great joy and and great meaning to corporate prayer when we gather together and pray together. But his point here is, why are we praying? Our prayer should not be, oh, I'd love to get that published. You know, it's not about... The others around us were talking to God. Some of you here may really struggle with praying in public. And I, I want to challenge you. Don't, don't let what anybody thinks stop you. Just talk to your Savior. He longs to hear from you. And he longs to hear from you in the body of believers. It's communion with him. If you're here and you may be tempted to pray to impress, stop it. You're impressing no one. No prayer is not to be prayed for others notice even though we can pray together and should pray together it shouldn't be so that it gets publicized so that people notice and say wow what a good prayer you are. Why is that the case? Well he mentions there in verse 5 publicized prayer has no eternal reward. Notice what it says there. They have received their reward. And so if we really want our prayers to be effective to, to hear, to, for God to hear and answer according to his will, it's not that he never, he doesn't hear us. He, he knows everything. But for him, him to answer according to his will, we don't use prayer as a way to promote ourselves. It has no eternal reward. Well, in verse 7, he gives us an, another reason or another how not to pray. And notice it says, Uh, Praying should not be prolonged. I use that word as a sense of saying things over and over and over and over again. Our text says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Some of your Bibles may read meaningless repetition. And and our Lord is not saying it's wrong to repeat stuff. He's saying, don't repeat it meaninglessly. And it's interesting that in church tradition, the prayer that Jesus gives us here often gets repeated meaninglessly. becomes a part of rote religious expression and we can lose the meaning. But, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray this prayer. We should. It's scripture. We should pray scripture. But I just think there's many times, and I'm, I, I include myself in it, I was taught at a very young age that you address God in prayer by saying, dear Heavenly Father. And over the years, I've added, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And then we bookend it with, in Jesus' name, amen. Those are great practices if they mean something. And and certainly, he is our dear Father. Father. He is our eternal father, unlike our earthly fathers that only are fathers for the lifespan. So, I, I can address him as dear heavenly father, but if I'm just addressing him as my heavenly father, because that's what you do when you pray, then it becomes a meaningless repetition. It doesn't get through. I should be thankful for this day, shouldn't it? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But if I'm saying, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and I move on, that's it. That's what Jesus is addressing. He longs for our communication with him, not our habitual words. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a good way to end a prayer. If we understand what it means. When Jesus said, You can pray anything to the Father in my name. What he is really saying is you can pray anything as long as I can sign my name to it. It's in in Jesus' name. I I guarantee you that I have not thought of that when I say in Jesus' name, amen. Have I really prayed according to his will? You know, so all I'm saying is... Our prayers should not be prolonged. We need to try to get away from the ritualistic ways in which we pray. where We're just letting the words roll off our tongues without meaning, without expression. We know what this is like when we're communicating with one another and somebody says the same thing over and over and over. Do you like it? Do you like it when your child says, why, 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 why? I mean we all understand in human relationships we want authentic relationships we want communication that's real and authentic the pagans did look at prayer as a way say these things and we we do it in our culture hardly a week goes by that I don't get something in Facebook that that says pray this prayer five times and pass it on to ten people and it will unleash God's power God is not played that way he's not manipulated that way say 20 hail mary's and that'll do the trick god is not played that way he's not malip- manipulated that way so our praying should not be prolonged as if in our many words and in, in our rote statements we get god's attention <clears throat> why why is why should we do it that way well notice verse 8 God answers that. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, prayer is not a news report to God. We're not informing him of anything. He knows our hearts. He knows what we need before we even ask it. So it's not an opportunity for us to report to him. It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge our need of him. And in the process, align our hearts to his will. And his desires for us. So we've seen the improper practice of prayer. We, we shouldn't pray to be publicized, to be noticed, has no eternal value, no eternal reward. We shouldn't pray prolonged prayers or recitations that are meaningless, because you're not informing God of anything, and he already knows what our needs is. And, and, and he hears the first time. He, he doesn't need all our uh, ritualistic recitations he longs for our hearts he longs for our true communication so let's notice now secondly the proper practice of prayer and again there are two how to's and two why to's let's look at the first how to it's found in verse six notice what it says there When but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you what a promise Our prayer should be a personal communion with God. I just want you to step back and think for a minute. And I know it's sometimes very difficult to talk to our Heavenly Father because we can't see Him, can't touch Him. But I know that as you seek Him, you'll know His presence and you'll sense His presence with you. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But I know sometimes it's difficult to pray and even pray audibly to to the Heavenly Father when we can't see Him and touch Him. But think about this. The God of the universe, the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all present everywhere at every time, the God who's eternal and holy and perfect and just and can do far beyond what we could ask or think, that God wants to hear from you and me. He longs to hear our communion with him. Much like you long to have good communication between spouses or, or your children and, and, you, and, and your heart grieves when there's brokenness there. Our God longs to have fellowship, intimacy, communion with his children who have been saved by the sacrifice of his son. Why should we? have personal communion with God? Why should we go in the closet, so to speak, and, and pray, and, and he hears us even before we, knows what we need. Before? Why? Why should we do that? According to verse nine, I mean, verse eight, it says, um, your father who's in secret will reward you. So prayer should be prayed for eternal reward. And personal prayer has eternal reward. You and I as believers sitting in this room this morning, as you talk to the God of the universe and pour out your heart before him, there is eternal reward that happens. The effectual, James says, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous person accomplishes much. Oh, how we miss on the powerful working of God in our lives. Because we treat prayer as a bookend, an introduction to what we're doing, and a closing to what we're doing, rather than inviting him into our lives through communion with him, whenever, whatever. You look at the Psalms as David cries out to God, he didn't cry out with perfect theology. He didn't say really great words sometimes. He accused God of abandoning him. He accused God of throwing him into hell. He he was crying out with his heart to the Lord. And God was okay with that. He inscripturated it in the songbook of the Bible. Not because it was perfect theology, but it was him crying out to the Lord, communing with with his heavenly Father, sharing his deepest burdens and hurts and uncertainties. And that's what God longs for us. That prayer will be a personal communion, intimacy with God. And that kind of prayer has eternal reward. Well, in verse 9, he gives us a second how-to properly practice prayer. And in verse 9 through 15, this how-to is praying should be prayed with proper attitudes. Now, Jesus teaches what has been commonly known to us in church as the Lord's Prayer. Later on, he taught it to the disciples, recorded for us in Luke chapter 11 in the first couple verses. The disciples saw him praying and they said, teach us to pray. And that's where we've gotten our sermon series from. And he teaches them this pattern prayer there, very similar prayer to this. So Jesus at least taught this pattern of prayer twice because he wanted us to get it and he wanted his disciples to get it and it it's not so much as what to pray as the way to pray and that's why he says pray then like this he wasn't giving us this recitation to pray he's just dealt with meaningless repetitions but it's not that we shouldn't pray this. And as, as we prayed this this morning, I imagine some of you that grew up in uh, other faith traditions, you prayed that prayer every week as a part of the act of worship. And there, again, is, there's great value to that to pray Scripture, to remind us of Scripture. But this prayer wasn't necessarily given to us so that we would pray it over and over and over, the words and the words. It was, pray- it was given to us to teach us a pattern of prayer. And there are four attitudes that are conveyed in these words of these prayers when he says pray like this. The first one we find in verse 9, and I call it the attitude of worship. Because notice what it says, our Father in heaven, holy or hallowed be your name there's deep meaning in our father. In a group this size, there are probably some of you in this room that have deep hurts because of the way your earthly father treated you. And sometimes it's hard to understand the love of the heavenly father because you don't have an example of an earthly father that loved you in that way. But everybody in this room Whether you had a good earthly father or a not-so-good earthly father, everybody in this room has a concept of what a good father is. Right? I want you to get that in your mind right now. The concept of a good father. And then I want to remind you that your heavenly father is a billion times better than that concept. He's our father in heaven. So everything you could think of uh, of a father doing in the right way of doing, it, he does it better and he's our father. He's not Jesus' father when he, he was Jesus' father, but the prayer doesn't start with my father. It starts with our father. You and I are children of God and we can address the God who is totally other, the God who knows all things, can do all things, is everywhere present, invites you to address him as your daddy, our father. Who art in heaven, so he's our eternal father. Our earthly fathers are for a little bit. He's our father forever. Hallowed be your name. This is the attitude of worship when we come before our Lord in prayer we ought not to come carelessly. We ought not to come cavalierly. Hey, what's up, dude? No, our Father who's in heaven. We come to him with a holy respect, with worship, with adoration for who he is and for what he has done for us in Christ and what he can do. So there's an attitude of worship that should be a part of our prayer practice before the Lord. A second thing I want you to notice is an attitude of surrender. That's in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the age-old human trait is to be autonomous. To be independent. When it comes to Alaskans. We're independent. That, that's what drew us here. Right? A place where we can be independent. Do our own thing. But if you and I are going to have intimacy with our God. We need to adopt this attitude of surrender. Your kingdom come. Now God's kingdom is going to come. Literally. In the future someday when he comes back for us. But, but his kingdom can come in our lives. His rule in our lives. This is an acknowledgement that God is th- our king. He's our Lord. He's our savior. And we bow before him. This attitude of surrender. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see as a believer in Jesus Christ. You have... A new nature. You were born again. and You have the mind of Christ. And because of that, you desire and delight after his will. You know what the problem is? You also have your human nature. I have the mind of Christ, but I also have the mind of Dave. And those two minds come in conflict. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. And things I don't want to do, I do. Why? Because these two natures duel it out with each other. They duke it out. And the only way for us to experience victory in the Christian life is to die to the human nature and yield ourselves to the Spirit and allow that new nature that we have in Christ to grow and become stronger and a stronger tendency in our lives. And that happens through prayer. Because as we come before Him with this attitude of surrender, we come with a recognition that apart from Him, we can do nothing and we yield ourselves to him. We die to ourselves and we say, I'm yours. You are king of my life. Your will is what I want. So this attitude of surrender is so important if we're going to practice prayer properly. Third is the attitude of dependence. Notice what it says there in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our sins or our debts, in this translation, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have a physical dependence and a spiritual dependence on the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. I think so often as believers we forget that our physical well-being is from him. We look to our jobs, we look to our paychecks, we look to our um, discipline and our determination and we say, we've got this handled. And we worry that we don't have enough because maybe our paycheck doesn't match our desires or whatever. But child of God, I want to remind you this morning that your very physical well-being, you're dependent on him. The days of our lives are numbered and we don't live a day longer and he determines we're a day less. By the way, you just breathed, didn't you? Let's just breathe together. That was a gift from God. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I thanked God for breath. I just take 12 of them a minute. And so do you. For me, actually, I take 16, because i breathe more heavy than others the average person breathes 12 to 16 maybe 12 to 18 times a minute when they're relaxed that's a gift from God and the whole thing is a gift from God Um, when you breathe in Alaskan air it's pretty clean I breathed in for 18 years California in Southern California air it wasn't very clean but God even planned on that one. He put little hairs in your, in your nose. And you put mucus along your airwaves to kind of filter it out. And then that air goes into your lungs, and each one of us gets about six to seven mil, uh, 700 million alveoli, these little sacs in your lungs. And then over time, the average person has about 480 million of them because of what we breathe. And, hurt some of them. And so, we, so that's the average amount. And those little sacs take that air, extract the oxygen, implant it into the blood system. And it pumps out throughout all of our, into our brains so that we can think and reason and live our lives. And you do that 12 times, to 16 times a minute. And the whole thing is a gift from God. That's why it's really important to say, give us this day our daily bread. To acknowledge him as Jehovah Jireh, the provider now, yes, we have our responsibility to work and be industrious, but it's God who provides. And it's God who will take that paycheck and stretch it if need be. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass us and lead us not into temptation. No, God doesn't lead, doesn't lead anybody to sin. He never tempts anybody, according to James, the Lord's half-brother. in James No man can say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. But here's the spiritual dependence where we're saying, Lord, I, I don't trust myself to say no to the temptation, so please, Lord, keep me as far away from the temptation as possible. There's this attitude of spiritual dependence. Talked about it as we sang this morning. John 15, I in the vine and you are in the branches, abide in me. We sang about it. And in that passage... It clearly says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why is it that we try to do so many things apart from him? See, developing a practice of proper prayer will work against that. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us. Don't lead us into temptation. Now, the third the fourth attitude, I call it the attitude of praise, and some of your Bibles do not have it in there, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the reason why some Bibles don't, they they took their translation cue from the earlier manuscripts, the more ancient manuscripts that we have today, um, of the New Testament scriptures in the original Greek language. But the vast majority, most of which are older are not older manuscripts or more recent manuscripts dated back to about 400 AD, have it in there. So some of your Bibles have it in there and some of you don't. Don't. Because it's questionable whether that was in the original writing. And I hope that doesn't shake your faith because I'm not even sure whether it is or isn't. But I know what it says is very biblical. And I know that from other passages of scripture so I would choose to put it in there. Because the vast majority of manuscripts, even though they're Younger manuscripts and the older ones that don't have it, have it in there. And what is the truth of it? For yours is the kingdom. This is the expression of praise to God. You belong as ruler in my life. Yours is the power. You can do everything. I'm praising you for that. Yours is the glory. You've heard of people saying of other people, boy, he's just a glory hound. Wants all the glory, you know. And you don't necessarily appreciate people that, that take all the glory. And that's a wrong view of glory in the sense of the New Testament uh, sense. Glory in the New Testament sense is, comes from the Greek word doxa, from which we get doxology. And doxa was used to describe the spark that would fly off of a heated piece of metal when it was hit on the anvil on a, by a metal worker. It got your attention. How many of you, when you see a welder welding the arc, you look at it? I think everybody does, and we know we're not supposed to. You can't look at it too long; it hurts your eyes. But every single time it happens, you look, and oh, oh I'm not to look. Yeah, right? why? Because flashes get our attention. Emergency vehicles have flashing red lights, not. Solid red lights why because it gets our attention and that's the idea to him belongs the glory to him belongs our attention He commands our attention That's a part of our praise You and I as believers created in the image of God have been designed for his glory It's where we will experience the most pleasure as Image bearers of God and when we're living for his glory rather than our own or somebody else's So there's an attitude of praise That's a part of the proper practice of prayer. Why should we do this, though? Why should we spare no effort to practice prayer properly? Well, notice verse 14 and 15. Notice what it says there in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, at first reading and the plain sense of this text, it sounds like God is saying, that Jesus is saying, that God doesn't forgive our sins unless we forgive others. As if the basis of our forgiveness before God is not the finished work of Christ on the cross, not his substitutionary death where he paid the price of our sin, but rather our daily work of forgiving others. It kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? But I want to say something From God's word. Nothing could be further than the truth about God's forgiveness. In fact, as Robbie was leading that song out of Ephesians, the blessings of the Father that are given to us in Ephesians 1, one of those blessings in Christ is enumerated in verse 7. It's up on the screen. In Him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let me just explain that a little bit. In, in Christ, you have been bought back from sin slavery, from sin's condemnation, eternal separation from God. You, a price has been paid, it says, through his blood. Now, when, when the scriptures speak about Jesus' blood or the shedding of blood, he's not talking about a physical shedding of human blood. He's ta- it, the shedding of blood in the scriptures means the giving of one's life, the sacrifice of the cross, If Jesus stubbed his toe in the New Testament time and it bled, it didn't save you. Now, I don't know whether he did or not. He was perfect, so maybe he didn't stub his toe. But I, I, all I'm saying is when Jesus gave his life for you, he shed his life's blood. It wasn't the blood that tripled, tripled out of his side and his, uh, from his crown. That, that was not salvific. It was the giving of his life. He sacrificed. He gave up himself for you and me. And it says that in him, we have redemption through his blood. What's that mean? The forgiveness of sin. You see, as a believer, when you trusted Jesus as your savior, your sin, the sacrifice of your sin, eternal separation from God, that consequence was paid for in full by Jesus. You have forgiveness. The term is so clear. You have forgiveness of sins. You have it past, present, and future. There'll never be a moment... That you don't have his forgiveness. But there will be many moments that you won't enjoy. Or experience the fellowship of that forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's what David said in Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. As you come before the Lord as a believer, if you are holding bitterness and resentment and hurt that somebody has done to you, and you're seeking to talk to the Lord, your prayer doesn't get through. You've broken fellowship with Him. When we come to Him, we come to Him with surrender. We come to Him asking for forgiveness and we'll enjoy the intimacy that comes from that fact that we have forgiveness when we don't regard Or cherish sin in our lives. You see, when we hold on to our sin, it breaks fellowship. We don't lose our salvation. We don't lose our forgiveness. But it breaks the fellowship that forgiveness gives. That intimacy that comes from God's forgiveness. We come to God in prayer unwilling to forgive others. We will never experience the fellowship that his forgiveness brings. Our prayers don't get through. We have forgiveness because we're saved in Christ, but we'll not experience the blessing of close intimacy with God in prayer if we don't forgive others from our heart. Let me illustrate this way. We, we have, some of you know this, we have two uh, basset hounds in our home. The one on the right is named Rhoda, she's about three years old and she gets it a little better than the one on the left who's named Faith and she's about a year old. But if you know about basset hounds, they're not known for their obedience. In fact they're known for their bullheadedness, They're stubborn people, dogs, canines. Okay. So if you have a basset hound you know you don't let them out of the house and say, Come on back. They just go. I mean, their noses are proportionately longer than the rest of their bodies, and they get, their noses get them in trouble because they get on a sn- smell, and they go off, and they get, get to the end of the smell, and they look up, where am I? I don't know where I am, and they, they don't know how to get home. So we've learned over the years that you put a basset hound, you give them some freedom. You put them on a run, and they can run back and forth on that cable run, but you don't let them go free. Because they don't know how to take care of their freedom. Just happened yesterday. Had both of them on the run. I left Rhoda off. And she's old enough to know. Hey when I get off I need to go back to the house. So she went trotting back to the house. Got up on the porch. Was ready to go. I, I left. Rhoda. I mean Faith off on the run. And she was on the run. Couldn't find her anywhere. For the next Oh, it was probably a half an hour. Uh, My wife and I were saying, Faith, Faith, clap, clap, clap. We're walking all over the place. Finally. And I I said, finally, I'll go back and check the road. I checked the road in the beginning, couldn't find her. I go back to the road and a hundred yards down the road, Rhoda's having a grand old time with two guys that had skateboards. She's wagging her tail. They're the best buddies in the world. And I, I call out to her and she looks at me and starts running the other direction. Now, I really like Rhoda. She's a part of my family. And there's nothing that will happen for her to be separated from my family until she dies. Or maybe I kill her. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, so I, I, I love her. She's the neatest dog. She's a companion. She gets up and snuggles. She's just a nice, basset hound. But at that moment, as she's running away, even though she's a part of my family, I'm not having so many good feelings about her. And you know what? She's not thinking too great either. And I don't know what's, I don't know what gets in the basset hound, but you know, if if the basset hound is back like at the doors there, they're going the opposite direction when you call them. But if the basset hound is like right here and you call them, they finally pay attention. And so I'm walking closer and closer, and she's running, running, finally I get to you know, ten feet away and I say, faith! She looks up to me, wags her tail a little bit, and starts running towards me. And as soon as she gets to me, she hits the floor. She's a low rider anyway, so not much, but she's down on the ground. Why? Because she's not certain about her relationship with her master. I am. I love her. She's a part of my family. But she isn't experiencing the joy of being a part of my family at that moment. Even though she has it. And until I give her a little swat on her rear end. And say, come on, let's go back home. And she gets up and wags her tail. And goes right back to the house like she should. I'm not saying that to compare your and my relationship with God like a dog and, <laughs> and a human being. But it is a perfect picture of what happens when we hold unforgiveness in our hearts or when we cherish sin in our hearts. It separates fellowship. It doesn't, it doesn't remove us from a relationship. It doesn't change our forgiven status before the Lord. But at that moment of refusal to acknowledge sin, there's a broken fellowship. And the only way that fellowship is restored Is by acknowledging i did wrong and coming along in obedience that's the same way with us if we hold unforgiveness in our hearts it will break intimacy with our father and the blessing of his forgiveness will not be enjoyed by us until we come back in humility let our bitterness go against others and seek his forgiveness jesus's point is quite clear in this passage when it comes to proper prayer, prayer that gets through is between God and you. Summarize this whole thing if you want to have a proper prayer life, you practice prayer that's just between you and Him. Personal communion with God that's what He desires, that's what He longs for, and that's what will bring intimacy in our walk with the Lord. Why do we do the things we do? A few years back, the people at Canon Camera hired Andre Agassi to pitch their camera. Maybe some of you remember Andre Agassi. He was the phenom when it came to a tennis player. He made lots of money, lots of endorsements. And in this ad between, you know, outstanding backhands of, of, of the tennis swing and a powerful overhands, as they, that was flashing over this image of a picture, and then this statement came across, and it said this, and this was Canon's advertising ploy, image is everything. Well, with cameras, that's really what you want. You want a camera to take the realistic picture. Well, not so often. You like Photoshop, too, because then you get to take the picture, but a camera that doesn't give a, a real image is not, not a very good camera, if it's blurry or whatever. So with cameras, image is everything, even though nowadays you can change even the image to make it look like we want it to look. I fear that what is true for cameras has become a motto for our society, where image is everything, not authenticity, not real relationship. And it can become so subtly a model for our believer in, as believers in Christ. But I want to remind you, image isn't everything when it comes to God. He longs for our authentic relationship with him that's only built through communion, personal communion with prayer. Take advantage of loving Jesus with communing with him for no other reason than just to commune with him He longs for that. His presence will be felt and experienced as we become people of prayer. So may God grant us the strength to truly practice prayer for his eyes only. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk to your Savior. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, your salvation is just a prayer away. All you need to do is call out to him, admit that you're a sinner, and believe in your heart that Jesus raised himself up from the dead and you will have salvation. He'll forgive you of your sins and give you that free gift of eternal life. That's yours for the asking. I'm assuming that most of us here this morning have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in this quiet moment, I want to ask you, are you harboring resentment and bitterness towards somebody else who's hurt you? I want to encourage you this morning to give that to the Lord. Holding that on that will only hinder your prayer life. By the way, husbands, when you don't love your wives like you're called to, that hinders your prayer life. There's a lot of hindrances to our prayer life. Unconfessed sin is the one that breaks fellowship with him. So in this quiet moment, would you do business with the Lord? Ask the Lord to help you. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with somebody. Maybe, maybe you've struggled with prayer and not wanting to pray and, and uh, feeling ill-qualified to pray. And I just want to encourage you. You don't have to impress God with your words. He knows your heart. He just longs to hear from us. He wants intimacy with us. Would you in this quiet moment commit to being a person of prayer as you walk with Jesus? Father in heaven, I thank you for the invitation that you give to your people. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who are known as people of prayer. And may we pray for your ears only. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful afternoon. Walk with the Lord this year. This week.